Let's now turn to the book of Romans, and we'll read from chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It's also turned to... The Belgic Confession, Article 2, the means by which we know God. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes, like a beautiful book, in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power, and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20, all these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
In verse 16 of Romans 1, we heard the Apostle, Apostle Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And uh, we might ask ourselves, uh, is that really necessary? Uh, isn't just the opposite the case that he he glories in the gospel of Christ? That is his boast. That is his joy. Uh, why would he say that he is not ashamed of it? At the very least, isn't that uh, an understatement? Unnecessary to even state? Yet it's worth asking the question, are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Am I ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Paul certainly knew that the gospel of Christ was something that was judged by the world in which he lived and to which he preached. It was judged by the Jews as as a stumbling block, as offensive. It was judged by the Greeks as foolishness. And uh, perhaps as a true... Uh, human being like ourselves who was influenced by uh, people's opinions of him, Paul had to deliberately push back against the perception that he had of how he was seen by others. And he perhaps had to fight against a kind of self-consciousness that he had to deal with when proclaiming the gospel to people whom he knew considered it to be ridiculous and foolish or offensive. And perhaps you've experienced that. Perhaps you know how you're being perceived when you bear testimony to the truth. And if you're going to maintain that testimony and actually dare to speak it, it takes some, it takes some determination and resolve. It, it takes a, a kind of determination not to be ashamed of a message that the world would make you ashamed of and afraid to speak. There are many temptations that would lead us to be ashamed of the message so that, well, if we still treasure it and value it personally, we may be tempted to keep rather quiet about it. And that's because of the response that we might meet with in our world. People might say, well, yeah, you believe that because that's the way you were raised. You were taught that, and so that's your religion. It's kind of an accident of... Uh, of uh, of fate, so to speak. If you had been born in a Muslim country or if you were raised by Hindu parents, well, you would share that religion. And people are pretty confident in their opinion that uh, you're a Christian simply because you happen to grow up in a Christian environment. And so you just kind of inherited that religion. And there's an element of truth in that. We recognize that God in his sovereignty has, for many of us, placed us in Christian homes. That's probably not true of all of us. And it's certainly not the case that everyone who is born and raised in a Christian home actually believes the gospel and continues to testify to its truth without shame. Perhaps a bigger obstacle that would hinder our, our faithful, confident confession of the truth is the recognition that uh, to claim that the Christian message is true invites ridicule and accusation of being bigoted and narrow-minded. Oh, so you think you've got the truth? So you think your religion is true and everyone else is wrong? So you think you're saved and you're going to go to heaven and everyone who doesn't believe the way you believe is lost is going to go to hell? And that kind of response would challenge us as to our convictions. It doesn't seem very Canadian. We live in a multicultural society. 
that involves the assumption that every culture is equal. Yeah, they have different tastes and values in terms of dress, in terms of music, in terms of food, in terms of religion. But these reflect so many different variations of taste and historical uh, development. And we don't judge them for liking this or that kind of food. We might prefer other kinds of food or other kinds of music, but we don't criticize their food. How dare we criticize their religion? It's un-Canadian to have that kind of attitude towards others. And these kinds of things might make us practically kind of ashamed of the message of the gospel and might even tempt us to uh, be influenced by the accusations of a kind of bigotry or arrogance. I mean, after all, are people actually to be blamed for not believing the way we do? If they don't believe in God the way we do, is that their fault? Well, we might be tempted simply to say then, well, it's it's true for me anyway. I, I find it helpful. But that's hardly a Christian confession, is it? Article 2 really gives us tools to respond to this kind of temptation. It makes clear that our confession is not a a pathway that we somehow hacked through the jungle of all the conflicting ideas and philosophies that are out there. It's not the based on, it's not based on a meticulous research whereby we investigated every religion and determined that Christianity is the superior one. And so in our own intelligence and spiritual sensitivities, we arrived at the proper religion. No, our confession is based upon God's self-revelation. We did not find our way to God. God made himself known to us, effectively, graciously, by his word and spirit. But we confess that the self-revelation of God is not some subjective opinion or feeling that we have, but it's objective. It's out there. In fact, God, to some extent, makes himself known to all people. And that's really a crucial uh starting point in our defense of the faith in the world in which we live. Romans 1 is really, really important when it comes down to understanding these things. God has revealed himself to man. That's the simple theme that we're considering from Article 2. And we're going to look at those two forms of revelation that are confessed in this article. Actually, you can see uh, these uh, two forms of revelation in Psalm 19 which begins with uh, declaring how the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows his handiwork to everyone, everywhere. And then it moves from that revelation of God in creation to his holy word, that special revelation whereby God is more clearly known in a saving way. So we're going to look at these two forms of revelation, general revelation, as uh, God's revelation in creation and in the conscience is is called, and then special revelation. Then we begin with general revelation. And it's called general because it is common uh, to all mankind. It is not restricted or limited to any uh, ethnic uh, or national identity whatsoever. This voice declaring the glory of God extends throughout the world in every place. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard, but their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. 
the creation itself, the heavens above and the earth below, constantly proclaim this message throughout the world every day. God is, and God is glorious. Romans 1 makes that clear as well. We considered the revelation of God himself in Article 1. We looked at the attributes of God. But we know that we cannot prove the existence of God to the satisfaction of other people that may be just as reasonable and just as intelligent or more than we are. And we can appeal to uh, the evidence of design. We can, we can talk about cause and effect. We can bring forth all kinds of arguments for the existence of God. But that doesn't mean that reasonable people, intelligent people, are simply going to be persuaded because the evidence is so irre- irrefutable and so overwhelming that all we need to do is present it. And if they're smart enough, like we are, well, they'll get it. That's not how it works. And we know that. But that's not because the evidence is insufficient. It's not because it's not clear or it's not compelling. It's not because the evidence is faulty or somehow obscure. Actually, according to Romans 1, this evidence that is this inescapable testimony of God's existence indeed is irresistible and inescapable. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The reality of God's nature, the reality of God's divinity, the reality of his power is inescapably obvious through creation. So there's a sense in which uh, we don't have to be real skilled apologetics in terms of giving really uh, good, logical, rational arguments. Now, we can grow in that ability, but any of us can bear testimony to the fact. Look to the heavens. Look to the stars. Observe the sun and the moon. Consider the, the amazing reality of creation that confronts us every day. And we are surrounded with the clear demonstration that God is, that he's powerful, that he's worthy of our worship and our gratitude. It sounds like a very simple kind of argument. The question, is it true? Is it faithful? Is it based on what God's word teaches? This revelation is inescapable. And that goes a long way to explain the instinct that that people have to acknowledge God in some way some kind of higher power. Again, they resist the true God, but, you know, actual professed atheists remain a pretty uh, small minority. I know their numbers are increasing, but most people acknowledge God in some way or another. I think even the proliferation of profanity bears testimony to some instinctive recognition that there is some ultimate being whose name they might invoke in order to give emphasis or appeal to some kind of ultimate reality. This revelation of God is an objective fact. In other words, it doesn't depend upon man's acceptance. Uh, it's not decided by vote. And it's not affected by any kind of denial. The fool has said in his heart, no God. That's what Psalm 1 or 14 verse 1 says. 
Now, no doubt, if you were to take an opinion poll, if you were to go and interview people throughout your neighborhood and ask them one simple question that goes like this, is the everlasting power and divinity of God shown to all, being clearly seen in the things that are made? I want to be clear with a question. I'll say it again. Is the everlasting power and divinity of God shown to all, all people, being clearly seen in the things that are made? Do you think you'd get a unanimous yes from all the people that you would interview? Not likely. But this is the statement of God's word. And it's not subject to human opinion or evaluation or agreement or disagreement to establish its truth. We could say the same thing about a question like, is Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life, so that there is no other way to the Father but by him? Do you think you'd get in a unanimous yes in your neighborhood by asking that question? Of course not. Oh, there are many ways to God. I mean, that's the, you, you probably get uh, more affirmative answers to that kind of question. But the eternal word has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the starting point of faith is to accept the word of God over the word of men. To accept the revelation from God rather than the opinion of men. And that's where we have to start when it comes to this question. Has God made himself known? Has God made himself known to all people? That's a truth that's not affected by whether people accept it or believe it or not. It's a fact. And this revelation indeed gets through to a certain extent. In Romans 1 verse 32, we said of uh, the people who practice this list of horrific kinds of behavior and wickedness, says they, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Those who practice such things in that list, deep down they know that they're worthy of death. So that when they appear before God and hear his verdict, they will have no excuse. Because they've practiced these things against conscience to a certain extent. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, As many as have sinned without law, that is without the, the word revelation of God's law, will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In other words, the law of God is going to be the objective basis for the judgment of all people. And those who have failed to worship God as God, those who have failed to love their neighbor, those who have failed to observe uh, the law of God with respect to sexuality, with respect to truth, with respect to the sanctity of life, and have violated God's law, they will be judged by that law. They will, be, they will perish by that law. Even if they've never heard the Ten Commandments read. And those who have sinned in the law, those who have heard the Ten Commandments and have not kept them, they will perish in the law without Christ. Well, on what basis can the law serve that purpose? Well, verses 14 and 15 explains that where it says, For when the Gentiles, that is, people that do not have God's word in this context, who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. No one can escape this 
internal monitor that registers good and bad. And according to God's word, that will be the basis of his judgment. That sense of right and wrong, of morality, remains inescapable. Sometimes the most judgmental people, sometimes the people that will get the most indignant and angry at what they perceive as wrongdoing, will deny the existence of God, and yet operate with very vigorous ideas of right and wrong, often by their own standards, which themselves are often distorted and twisted, or they're very inconsistent in the way they maintain those standards. The Canons of Dort calls this self-revelation of God uh, the light of nature. In the third and fourth head of doctrine, there's an article that deals with the light of nature and its inadequacy. It says, there is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. But this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him, so far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly, even in matters of nature and society. Instead, in various ways, he completely distorts this light, whatever its precise character, and suppresses it in unrighteousness, In doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. This revelation gets through to certain people. In the past week, we heard some rather strong condemnations of the horrific massacre that took place in the Gaza Strip by Hamas. The murder of innocent civilians, women and children, small children, people of all ages, And we've heard our civil leaders condemn these things as wrong, as evil. President Biden called it sheer or pure evil. And we can applaud that judgment. It's true. But interestingly, such judgments really involve a kind of assumption that there is such a thing as evil. And if there's pure evil, if there's sheer horrific evil, is there other kind of evil? What is that evil? What is really right and wrong? Does a man like Joe Biden really stand on the high ground in his righteous opposition to all evil? The man who can condemn the murder of children and the elderly and be one of the most pro-abortion presidents ever? Who preaches so-called human rights to snuff out the unborn in the womb? Isn't that evil? Isn't that pure evil? By what standard? Do people who read your judgments against certain things, are they at all consistent? No, they're not. But they know the difference between good and evil, although they apply it very selectively and often very selfishly, very proudly. Brothers and sisters, when you bear testimony to the truth of God, when you talk about sin, when you talk about the need for salvation, also to people who may deny such things altogether, who might dismiss them, who may claim to be atheist or irreligious, be sure that when you testify to such things, you are touching something deep within their souls. Whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they feel it at the time or not, 
We know more about them than they know or are willing to admit about themselves. Our point of contact is not their feelings, their opinions. Our point of contact is the reality of who they are, like ourselves. Those made in the image of God, moral, reasonable beings indeed, with a conscience. Those who cannot escape the reality of God, the fact of judgment, and be confident, not that we'll persuade them, but be confident that what we say of God as we speak the truth of the gospel is true. And God, the Holy Spirit, may use it because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to awaken people spiritually to their actual need and to bring them to repentance. Or it will serve as a testimony against them that will leave them further without excuse in the day of judgment because they've heard the message from God that it's true. That leads us to the result of this general revelation. You know, some people might say, well, since God makes himself known to all people, if only people will make good use of the light of nature and live according to the measure of light that they have, well, then they also will be saved. That's a big if. It's a kind of if that never happens. We've already read from the Canons of Dort. It's confession of the teaching of Scripture that people don't make proper use of the light of nature. They twist and pervert it, even in things natural. And that's based on the testimony of God's testimony of God's word, where it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They actively dismiss, suppress, deny, resist, argue against the truth of God. They use all their reasoning capabilities to object, to resist, to deny. And as a result, they are without excuse. That's the invariable response of man in his fallen, depraved condition. They always do. Every false religion is some variation of this. Belgian Confession, Article 2, very succinctly summarizes the result, quoting from Romans chapter 1, where it says, All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. All are confronted with the reality of God's self-revelation. All are accountable to him. All are guilty. All are without excuse. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the only means to reach sinners in their desperate condition under the wrath of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's revealed objectively in his judgments which are manifested in the earth. It's revealed subjectively in the consciences of people who live in the fear of death. For whom the the thought of the God of Scripture is a frightening thing. And they want to suppress it and keep it down. And the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes by way of special revelation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not ashamed to say that the gospel is necessary for salvation. And you know, brothers and sisters, to say otherwise is to really deny God's grace in giving his word. If the, if the gospel is not necessary for salvation, well, it wasn't necessary for us either. And it's no big deal that God in his sovereign providence and mercy and love gave us his word. Article 7 in chapter 3 and 4 uh, deals with this manifestation of, of God's love. Where it says in Article 7, In the Old Testament, God revealed this secret of his will, that is the way of salvation, to a small number. In the New Testament, now without any distinction between peoples, he discloses it to a large number. The reason for this difference must not be ascribed to the greater worth of one nation over another or to a better use of the light of nature, but to the free, good pleasure, and undeserved love of God. Therefore, those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all they deserve ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. On the other hand, with the apostle, they ought to adore, but certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and justice of God's judgment on the others who do not receive this grace. The grace there described is that of having the word of God, having the message of salvation, which God in his sovereign discriminating mercy has given to us. You see, only the word reveals God's saving mercy, reveals the way of peace through Christ. The light of nature is sufficient to leave people without excuse. It's not sufficient to bring them to a knowledge of salvation. For that we need the, the, the gospel. And the word we are given as much as we need in this life for God's glory and our salvation. That's the language of our confession. And that also means that by special revelation, we are enabled to, uh, to read the book of creation more clearly. In other words, we're not only able to see the reality of God's existence and power, but we're able to understand more of, of his government of the world and the way his judgment and goodness is, is made manifested. Article 2 includes, includes those things. It's by creation preservation and the government of the universe that God makes himself known more clearly to us. Calvin called the word of God the, the spectacles, whereby, you know, referring to eyeglasses, whereby we're able to see more clearly even the truth that is revealed in general revelation. And that means also that we always have to interpret general revelation in the clearer light of special revelation. Science is not our ultimate authority. By no means. All true and legitimate and proper conclusions drawn from science are indeed a revelation from God, but they never conflict with Scripture. There's never a real conflict between these things. Special revelation is a sovereign gift of God, and it's one we are to never take for granted. But we should always be humble and grateful for it, because it is special. It's, it's special in its recipients. It's special in its content, revealing the way of salvation, the way of truth and life through Christ. And it's special in its power. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for Jews and Gentiles. 
Whoever believes. You know, also there is a distinction, isn't there? By the Holy Spirit, some who have that word receive it and believe it and are saved by it. Special revelation also comes then with special obligations. And first that obligation is to indeed receive it humbly in faith. Actually, the next article in uh, Cans of Dort, Article 8, speaks of this call of the gospel when it says, All who are called through the gospel are called seriously. For seriously and most genuinely, God makes known in his word what is pleasing to him, that those who are called should come to him. Seriously, he also promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. You see, that means that whoever hears the message of salvation in Jesus Christ ought not to look for anything more as a warrant to take God very seriously as he reveals his will for them personally, individually, that they should repent and believe the gospel. And they have only themselves to blame if they refuse that wonderful overture of God's grace when he holds forth Christ in the gospel. It says, believe in him, receive him, and be saved. But then secondly, we might say there is another obligation that comes with the possession of God's special revelation. We actually heard it in the call to worship this uh, this evening where it says, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all people. You see, this is another difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is there for all to see. We need not. We we cannot give it to anyone. And that's contrary to special revelation. Special revelation comes through the ministry of the gospel. comes through missionaries. It comes through the testimony of Christians. And there's an urgency to that message and that mission. We heard it in Paul's uh, words in verse 14 where he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, uh, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He feels this debt towards all people to make known the news, the good news of salvation. And God has chosen the church then to be the light of the world by holding forth this word of life. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let that be our conviction. Let it be evident in our testimony, in the circle of our uh, acquaintances, in our daily life, with fellow workers and others with whom we come into contact. Let us not be ashamed of this message. Let's testify to the truth of God and of his holy word and the way of life and salvation. Well, there's a lot about ourselves that we might be ashamed of. There's a lot about preachers that would make them ashamed and be intimidated as they're aware of their own inconsistencies and their own inadequacies and their, their own weaknesses. And believe me, that's a temptation for preachers to be discouraged, to be disheartened. But then they need to remember the message. They're not the power of God unto salvation. Preachers, missionaries, you're not the power of God to salvation. It's the message, it's the good news that God uses. And always uses weak and broken vessels so that our confidence might not be in ourselves, whoever we might be, but in God, knowing that he uses his word to bring life and salvation to people. Amen.